Our reading this morning is from Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and 36 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore a grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He was ears, let him hear. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, he answered. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thanks, Delroy. Um, it is good to see everybody on this chilly and wet morning. At least it was raining when I got here. I have this theory that in Florida, rainy weather should increase church attendance because whatever it was that you were going to do was most likely outside and you can't do it anymore, so you should come to church. But that's just not, my theory has never really proven true. So thank you. Good to see those of you who are here on this rainy morning. Before I jump into this cheery passage, um, I want to talk about something that you heard about at family night. We are going to have a marriage event on April 29th and 30th called Me and You in 2022. And somebody in the first service said, do you realize that's grammatically incorrect. And I said, do you realize that it rhymes? Like that, that's, that's more important to me than grammar. So next year it can be you and me in 2023 and it'll be gram grammatically correct. But you know, Angela and I speak for family life. And part of the deal when, when, we, when we came here is that the church was gonna allow us to continue to do so. I won't embarrass anybody here. There happens to be one couple here unexpectedly uh, who we met at our Tampa, we can remember, and they're in town visiting and they're here this morning. It's something that we really enjoy doing and, and we want to take, be good stewards of these resources and bring them back to you. And so we know by every survey and study and metric at this point that marriages are struggling as we come out of COVID. And so we want to have a marriage event. We are going to have a marriage event. We will have three sessions. One will be Friday night. We'll have one, two Saturday morning. Each session will have two talks. Angela and I will do a talk in each of the three sessions. And each of the three sessions, we will, be, uh, we will um, have another couple come in. We'll have Meg and David Robbins, who are the presidents of Family Life. We're gonna have Mike and Lucy Aitchison. Many of you know them. They, he's the pastor of Christ United Fellowship, also uh, in downtown Orlando. They're also Family Life speakers. And Michael and Rachel Blackston, who own 
own all the Redeemer Counseling Centers around Orlando. She's also an adjunct professor at RTS. We think that it's going to be a really fun event. We want to invite y'all. I, I, I do think because of who the other speakers are, uh, I, I think there's a chance this thing could fill up. So I really want to urge Orlando Grace Church people, if you want to be a part of it, please go ahead and register. You can see how to register in your, in your bulletin online. Uh, it is $50 per couple. All those scholarships are available upon request. And I've been asked a number of times if, uh, if, li- if you have little babies, because we don't have childcare, we're hoping that plan that far out, we can figure out childcare. But yes, if you have little babies, we, you know, they, they have to be with you. And we also have cry rooms if need be for that. So I put that in front of you. Now we can turn to Matthew 13. We're looking at Matthew 13, continuing to walk through Jesus's parables. Remember, he, he's tired. It's later in the day. He's been confronted by the Pharisees and he goes down by the sea to rest and another huge crowd comes up. And so he gets out into his boat so that he can see everybody on the seashore and so he can address them and he does so in parables. And if you were here last week, I made a big deal to point out that there are two different audiences here. The first audience is the crowd. And that crowd would have been pretty confused because the parables don't make a lot of sense. Jesus did not offer an explanation to the crowd. So last week we kind of went through the parable of the sower as if Jesus had come here glorified body and all, given it to us, only the parable, not the explanation, it would have been very confusing. And it was confusing to this crowd. We also looked at the fact that it's confusing because the parable in itself is a sign of judgment on the crowd. This crowd has been following Jesus. They've heard him teach in the clearest possible way. They have seen him do undeniable miracles, but they are still saying, give us more, more evidence, more proof. And so Jesus is in a way with these parables saying, all right, you want more proof. You wanna, you wanna see more. I am going to give you more. I'm actually going to give, I'm gonna give you a different kind of more. I'm gonna show you the hardening of your hearts by giving you a message of the kingdom that will leave you more confused than when you arrived. But then there's the second audience. The audience is the disciples. And because we can read the explanation ourselves, this audience is us as well. And so the disciples go to Jesus and, and they say, and this is my paraphrase, my paraphrase, what in the world are you doing? Like, why are you speaking in these confusing parables? Nobody understands you. And Jesus says, to you will be given the secrets of the kingdom. I will explain these parables to you. And as we saw last week, the parables are intended to teach us something about the nature of the kingdom. And not just teach us something, but with this second audience, Jesus' intention is to correct misunderstandings about the kingdom. And so this, this audience expected the Messiah to come and bring the kingdom with him like a lightning bolt, all in one moment. The kingdom is here. All the world is gonna be put in line and worship Jesus. Rome will be ousted. And from that point forward, Jerusalem is gonna be at the center of every map. That's what they expected to happen. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, the kingdom is gonna come slowly. And in the parable of the sower, he was saying, and actually not everybody who hears the message of the kingdom is going to believe in the message of the kingdom. And now in the parable of the weeds, he's saying, and what's more, everybody who says they're in the kingdom isn't actually going to be in the kingdom. He says, you have, you, Satan will have his people here. You will have sons of Satan. You have unbelievers. Don't be surprised by this. In the church, short version. There are believers, but there are also unbelievers. They could be sitting right next to you. 
but before we start giving people weird looks and <laughs> tempted to nudge somebody, that, that's not, I don't think that's the intention of this passage. What I wanna do before any nudging begins is recap this parable and then see three really important warnings to the church in light of this parable. So recap, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes out to sow seed. He finishes sowing seed, he goes home and that night an enemy comes out and sows seeds of weeds. So he had planted wheat, this guy comes out and sows seeds of weeds. And you know, in my top 100 ways that I would attack a moral enemy, this is not in the top 100, but I did some research and it was a thing. Like people, this, this wasn't often, but people would do this. And I guess it would be like the modern day equivalent of being a grocer and your mortal enemy, uh, when your produce delivery arrived, sneaks in a bunch of soured meat and spoiled vegetables and fruits. But the problem is you can't tell the difference. All the dates are the same, but it, this would have been a big problem for you. Although the modern day equivalent, you can fix that problem fast. This is not a problem you could fix fast. So the servant begins to see that these shoots are coming up and they're different kinds of shoots. There's wheat, but there's weeds too. And that's when they realize foul play is afoot. So he goes to the master and he says, uh, master, what are we gonna do? Do you want us to go in and just go ahead and pluck out all these weeds? And the master said, no, I need you to be patient. I have a specialist who can deal with this at a later point in time. And then when everything has fully grown, my specialist is gonna come and he is going to separate the wheat, which will all go into the barn with the weeds, which will all be burned. That's the parable. And Jesus says, let those who have ears to hear, hear. So again, confusing if you don't have the explanation for this parable. But Jesus does explain. He explains to the disciples that he's talking about believers and unbelievers. And some, it's often misunderstood that Jesus is saying here, he's talking about all believers and unbelievers all over the world. Now, certainly there's an element of that that's true because Jesus is going to come and separate the sheep from the goats. That's gonna happen. But what's happening here is very clear at the end of the parable when Jesus says that these weeds will be plucked out of the kingdom. So the only visible physical manifestation of the kingdom we have today is the church. So clearly this parable is talking about believers and unbelievers in the church, which isn't an ideal thing, it's not, it's not a good thing. It's not something we should be, you know, just kind of throw up our hands at. But Jesus is saying it's a real thing. Until he comes back, that is going to be the reality. You will have weeds among the weeds. So if that's true, here are three warnings that we should hear from this parable. Warning one, don't be surprised when people fall away from the visible church. So you have the invisible church that is the total sum of all believers on earth any given time. The visible church is what we see and what we can, the people who say I'm a part of the church. Now there's a lot of overlap in those groups, but it's not perfect overlap because there are those in the visible church who are not really Christians, who are not really in the invisible church. And so because they were never really part of the invisible church, never really part of the church at all, we should not be shocked when they fall away as they will, and that happens in many different ways. Some people just show their true colors when being a part of church becomes socially, politically, economically inconvenient. They decide I'm not gonna be around anymore. And so, you, you know, you could, there's a hundred ways you could flesh that out. You know, this would include the young 
man who leaves the church because he wants the young woman who wants nothing to do with church. It would include the people who um, COVID hit. They enjoyed whatever it is they do on Sunday mornings. They enjoyed their fishing or golfing or sleeping in or line dancing or whatever it is that people do on Sunday mornings. They wanted to keep doing that. So they, it wasn't convenient anymore. They stopped going. Or it, I mean, in, in a in a heightened political season. It, it includes those who look at the secular right and they think that's what the church is all about and I'm just not, I don't want anything to do with that, so, so they walk away. It, include, you know, it includes lots of different categories. I mean, I actually see a lot of people who, and, and let me say this, I'm not talking about going from one church to another church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about leaving the church altogether over things like masks. I'm just like, I don't, I don't like wearing masks. I don't wanna wear masks, but you're gonna leave the whole church when all the churches masked up, really glad you weren't born in China or someplace that was like really hard. I mean, this is, people leave the church over these kinds of things. They show their true colors. Some though, don't leave, don't just leave the church. They publicly leave the faith altogether. And so when, when my kids were young, Angela and I had a really good friend. He was our Sunday school teacher. He was in our community group. And he not only left the faith, he left his family too at the same time. It was really pretty abrupt and, and it was jolting, jolting to us. It had ripple effects in our Sunday school class and our community group and in our little church in Mississippi. But some people leave the faith in ways that aren't so localized. You have very public departures from the faith from people like Josh Harris or people like Ravi Zacharias who have left us with a lot of questions of whether he ever was a Christian in the first place. And in these public departures, people are shocked that, that, that people would leave the church. And if, that, if they would leave the church, I need to be, then begin to question everything that I know that Jesus said, everything that I've been taught about the Bible. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. <laughs> we need to know that this is going to happen and not be surprised when it does. So the natural question, though, when these things happen, when we see these departures from the faith, it, it is like, what just happened? <laughs> How do I understand what's going on in light of what Jesus teaches? And in this parable, that's exactly what the servant does. They go to the master and they say, what's going on? Did you give me, was the seed you gave me pure? Because the expectation is that the seed was pure. So how then can this mixed crop grow up? And in the same way, if we're gonna draw on language from the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. As we, as we proclaim the word of God, the expectation is that in the church, a pure crop would grow up but Jesus is saying that's not going to be the case. This is a misunderstanding of how the kingdom of God is going to come. Paul tells the Corinthian church, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end, though, will correspond to their deeds. Then 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. They were Christians seemingly sent out from us, but they were not really of us for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they are not all of us. So what John is saying is they were never really a part of the kingdom. So if they were never really a part of the kingdom, we should not be surprised when they say, I'm not a part of the kingdom or show themselves to be such. So as a church, when we hear this warning, we have to be careful not to drift to one extreme or the other. So you can drift towards the extreme of just throwing up your hands and be like, well, I guess it's gonna be a mixed bag, nothing I can do about it. And the other extreme is to drift towards this side and, and become overly strict and overly rigid and overly controlling to 
And because you know that there's weeds, try to do whatever you can to make sure there's few as possible in this church. And both extremes are harmful to people in the church. So many of you know Angela, my wife, is uh, getting her counseling degree at RTS. And she just took a class. And I, it's really fun having her as a student because I feel like I'm learning a ton. And, and she learned that when you have children who grow up in overly rigid and controlling households, 77% of those children develop a sexual addiction. And when you have children who grew up in the, the other extreme, in, a, in an environment where there's no parental control, just a free-for-all, 87% of those children develop a sexual addiction. And this morning, like we went back to her notes, these are class notes, make sure that these statistics are right, and they are. And so if that's true in our homes, how much more is that going to be true in the church? And so what does that look like? Well, you can, you can drift towards the side of throwing your hands up and just like, well, Jesus says there's gonna be weeds, so what am I gonna do about it? You know, people aren't gonna have a Christian ethic. I'm not really gonna push on them. People may not believe in things like the resurrection, but everybody's happy and they're giving us their money, so let's not rock the ship. That's not at all what, what this is teaching. We can't go to this extreme and just throw our hands up. You know, Paul to the Galatians says, if anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel other than what I preach, what does he say? Let them be anathema. Like this is a, that's a, let them be cursed. That's a, that's a really harsh way of saying it, really strong way of saying it. it's important what we believe. The doctrine's important. Jesus tells us that after we remove the log in our own eyes, we are to address the splinters in other people's eyes. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing someone in his church who is, in that church, who is in gross sin. And not only is he in gross sin, he's boasting about it. So he's not like struggling with his sin, he's bragging about it. And Paul goes to the extreme saying, let him be cast out of the church. Not, not to shame him as an end, but so he can see that what's going on is serious, that he can repent and come home and be welcomed with open arms and really see the grace of Jesus Christ. So, so we can't go to this extreme and just throw our hands up and say, whatever will be, will be. That's not okay. This is why we have church membership. This is why we have discipleship. And, and very rare and extreme cases, this is why we have church discipline as it's laid out in Matthew 18. And if I'm really honest, another way we see this is the church in its modern expression that is just looking to fill up all the seats at all costs. You know, whatever we do to get people in the seats, to bring unbelievers in and to create this awesome worship experience and this environment, it's really conducive every Sunday for someone to give their life to Jesus. Now, I appreciate the evangelist, evangelistic thrust there. I really do. Uh, and I think there's a, certainly a place for it, but not as every Sunday when the believers gather together. And I also think there should be an opportunity for unbelievers in the midst to come into the kingdom. But that's not holding this tension in line. That's more of a modern expression of an old school revival. Again, I think there's a place for it, but that's not what we're called to be and as do be and do a, as a church. That was a complicated sentence. On a regular basis, every Sunday. But there is this other extreme as well, an extreme we call the hermeneutic of suspicion. You know, we, we get all overly rigid and controlling and we're looking at everybody in the church and we're wondering, are you a son of Satan, Angela? Are you a son of Satan, daughter, Liz? Like, are, are you, Don? I mean, that, that's not how we're supposed to operate. 
But that happens, that is this other extreme. It's the equivalent of going into that, that field very quickly and early to try and get those weeds out as fast as you can, not knowing that you're trampling on all the good seed. And that as you pull up these little weeds, their little roots are entangled with the wheat and the wheat comes up too. That's not how we are supposed to look at the body of Christ. We're supposed to believe the best until a situation is made very clear. So my kids right now are under the impression that anybody who drives a white van is a criminal. I'm sorry, if you're here today and you drive a white van, they will look at you like you are at best a kidnapper at worst, a murderer, but definitely a kidnapper. And they're constantly trying to make their case to this end. And so we were driving down 436 this week and there was this white van and you can see, because you can see in it and you can see on the side what it does. And it was a van that, uh, it was a service to disabled people in Orlando and they would take disabled people from one part of Orlando to another part of Orlando. Great service. And my daughter says, see, it literally says on the side of the van, we will take you. How can that not be a criminal? But when we drift to this other extreme, the hermeneutic of suspicion, that's the way that we're looking at everybody in the church. Are you really a daughter of Satan? Are you a son of Satan? We're looking for it at every point in time. And when we do this, when we're not believing the best in each other, this hermeneutic of suspicion, it is harmful, it is condescending, and those who embrace it are going to be worn out and ultimately isolated. So how is it that we can identify this in its early forms? Well, often people are gonna take an amoral issue and make it a moral issue because behind the issue, there's a suspicion that you're not really following Jesus. And so Angela, you know, after she had gone back to grad school, somebody not in this church came up to me and said, hey, I, Jim, I just want you to know I appreciate that your wife wants to grow, but you really need to know that I don't think her place is in the workforce. So what he was really saying is I'm suspicious of women who work because inevitably they must be neglecting their families. And I'm gonna make working a, a moral issue because if you don't conform to that, then I'm really suspect of your walk with Jesus. And then he applied that misconception to Angela. That's not pushing people toward Christ. That's harming people. So I said, thank you. He went and got into his white van and they left. <laughs> Kidding. It was a horse and carriage. All right. <laughs> there are over 2 million people in the greater Orlando area who used to go to church and no longer do. That's an epidemic, which doesn't sound like a big deal now that we've seen a pandemic, but it really is a big deal. Even though it's lo locally, it's nationally encapsulated, it's a huge deal. And a lot of these people who are choosing to leave the church, they're leaving as casualties of one of these two extremes. Either they come from a church that just kind of threw up their hands in one way or the other, and they didn't give them the things that they needed through discipleship and community and prayer for their roots to go down and bear fruit the way that the parable of the sower tells us that we should bear fruit but then others are casualties of these overly rigid and controlling and lording over you kind of churches that I would have left too, not knowing that there are better manifestations of the church in our community. 
we are in the greatest religious shift in the history of our country right now. It's a shift we call the Great Dechurching. It's bigger than the Second Great Awakening. It's bigger than the post-Civil War resurgence. It's two and a half times bigger than that, just going the other direction. And so, especially for us, living in the middle of this major cultural and religious shift, we should be able to go back to this parable and not be surprised as millions of people leave the church because Jesus said that this was going to happen. So we shouldn't be rattled, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't look at it as some sort of proof that the Bible is wrong. We should actually look at it as proof that the Bible is right. Jesus said that this was going to happen. First warning. I'm realizing I'm halfway through my sermon, I've only given you one warning. I will be efficient with the next two. The second one is don't use hypocrisy as a reason to not go to church. I had a pastor friend who somebody said to him, you know, I'm not going to go back to church and I won't even go to your church because there's just too many hypocrites in the church. And that pastor looked at him and said, well, one more is not going to matter. <laughs> Sorry, snap, snap. And what, before we get to the heart of what this passage is saying, I want to create this caveat. The church is full of hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. We have our hypocritical moments, all of us, very much including me, and we have our hypocritical, hypocritical seasons. Sometimes we are just a hot mess of a Christian and there's, a, there's, a, there's an okay space for Christians to have those kind of seasons. The thing that makes us Christians is not our perfect obedience. The things that makes us Christian is the repentance that comes after the bad decisions. And sometimes this is gonna happen to a brother or sister who's really invested in your life. It could be somebody who discipled you. It could be somebody you know, a Sunday school teacher, a community group leader, could be a pastor. But we need to know that everyone is capable and ultimately will have hypocritical moments. This is why Augustine long ago, he said the church is not a place where those who have already been entirely healed gather. The church is a hospital for sick sinners where they get well. So that's kind of the caveat. More to the heart of our passage though, Sometimes these people making really self-destructive decisions, sometimes they are truly weeds among the wheat or what Jesus calls wolves in sheep's clothing. But here's the deal. Until something has been made clear, we can't know the difference. And sometimes we're just never gonna know the difference. And if we're consumed with being able to tell, you know, what a Christian and, and where the weeds are, before you know, things sometimes make themselves clear, then it's gonna really wear us down, it's gonna harm people because we have a very man-centered perspective. If anything, we should have, when we look at this, at what is happening, we can't let other people's bad decisions affect the most important decisions that we're gonna make. If anything, when people make bad decisions, it shouldn't make us trust less in what Jesus taught, but it, more because this is exactly what he said would happen. You know, in every place I've lived, I, I mean, I didn't write this, I'm just thinking five cities maybe in two states and two countries. Every place I've been, I've had people say, I will never go back to church because of what this pastor did. And often it's extra hurtful because this pastor, not only was he given authority, they oftentimes, they were great preachers and great disciples and people came into the kingdom and were baptized and built up and around great community. So when that kind of a, when that kind of a fall happens, it just 
it messes with who you are even more. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen. He wants us to have what we need to be able to walk through those seasons. And he wants us to know that the church is both filled with flawed believers and the church is filled with wheat and wolves. And you point to any of those pastors and ask which is which, I, I don't know. It's not my place to know if I don't know them personally and have a lot of information, which I don't. But what our call for us is not to look at the hypocrisy in the church and decide Jesus isn't real, the Bible's not true. We look at the parable of the weeds and know, oh, this is what Jesus said would happen. And, and the grace that we, we should be giving people struggling, the grace that we want to receive when it's our season to struggle. All right, so we, that's the second warning. We can't look at hypocrites and not go to church. Thirdly and lastly, we must be patient. We have to be patient. Jesus, he's not telling the disciples this parable so that they can go in and find all the weeds amongst them in the early church. Actually, that's what the servants wanted to do in this passage. The servants wanted to go in and they wanted to figure out, you know, where do we go in and get the weeds? And the master wisely says, no, I've got a specialist who's gonna deal with this at a later time. I want you to be patient. And that does not make that master unattentive or uncaring. It just means he's the master and he knows how to best deal with this situation. And the same thing is true with our heavenly master. Jesus also says he has specialists and those specialists are angels. And the disciples, they want the kingdom to come and come fully and come fast. Again, they want it to come like a lightning bolt. They want everybody put in line. They want Rome ousted. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to be patient. And if that's true of the Israelite culture, how much more is that gonna be true of us? I mean, these Israelites, they, they would have to go out and catch the fish that they would eat. That there's patience involved in that process. They had to grow the wheat that they would eat and sell. There's patience there. There weren't a lot of instant gratification options back then. And they, they didn't get thrown a lot of curveballs either. You just had your life and it kind of went the way it is. And they were tempted to be patient. How much more we who, when we go fishing, we bring food to eat along the way because God forbid we get hungry as we're going to catch the fish that we're gonna eat for dinner. You know, we get frustrated when both lines at Chick-fil-A are not open. We get frustrated when the waiter is late to come to our table or late to bring our food, doesn't bring exactly what we want. You know, we're, what, what do you do when you pull up a website on your browser and it takes 10 seconds for that? I mean, 10 seconds. I'm, I wanna talk to Mr. Spectrum. I mean, this is, we have no patience in our society. So if the disciples are impatient, how much more are we gonna be tempted to be impatient in our culture? And so there are many kinds of impatience. I don't want to get drawn off the main topic. The main topic here, Jesus is warning about being patient with the slowness of the coming of the kingdom. We do not want to wait on the will of God. We want God to conform to our table, our timetable. We, we don't wanna wait for the answers to our prayers. We don't wanna wait for the end of our pain and our suffering. And all of us, when we feel like we're wronged, we want justice to come swiftly. Or at least we think we do. Maybe not when we, we're the ones who wronged somebody else. You know, we, we think, but what, if, what if Jesus had brought his kingdom swiftly the day before I had put my faith in Jesus? We're really thankful there's, there's some patience on Jesus' part. I'm really thankful that Jesus doesn't operate in a way where every word, thought, and deed that we 
do is judged in that moment fully and swiftly. There are weeds in the church. There are sheep, there are wolves among the sheep. And Jesus doesn't have this parenthetical except for Orlando Grace Church. Like we have to assume that they're here too. But we don't need to be worried about it. We do what we can, we operate as the Bible shows us, but we don't worry about it because worrying about it is in itself a form of impatience and an evidence of a lack of trust in God. Because in that moment, we are showing our man-centered perspective. And the reason that we don't have to awkwardly look around and wonder who are the sons of Satan in our midst is because there's also a God perspective. God, God sees things in a way that none of us do because he knows his sheep he knows his weeds. He knows who we are. He knows the wolves among us. And he's going to take care of us. Now, if you're over a certain age, I don't, I don't know that my kids have ever seen a true, good, live police chase. Like, you know, when cable, one of the best things about cable news when it came out is they would hit an all stop and you could see some, some guy who probably did something wrong hauling 100 miles an hour down the highway and the police are chasing him and we all just stopped our lives to watch and, and see what happened and I've, I've seen a number of them I remember sitting in my fraternity house in Tallahassee and all my buddies were just watching this car chase and you know I'm thinking in that moment I don't we don't see a lot of those now I don't know if they do that anymore if it's just because I don't watch cable tv but it, I wish we could see a few more of those anyway I digress um so in that moment, you know, now looking back, I'm thinking that guy actually thought there was a, probably a chance of getting away. You know, he just saw that one police car right behind him. He didn't see the 10 behind him. He didn't see the 10 two miles down setting up the things that flatten your tires. He didn't know that there was a police chopper up there telling every single police officer every turn that guy made. And he certainly didn't know that all of us in the Sedmon Kai house were watching because of the news helicopter right next to the police helicopter. He's thinking he's getting away with something, but all of us are watching. And then the fans come out, you know, people realize he's, they're going to drive right in front of our house. And they go, you can start to see people lining the street, watching these, these chases. And inevitably, the chase ends either as, you know, flattened tires, dead end, out of gas, wreck, whatever. But the guy still thinks there's a chance. And so he, so he runs. And we're all watching him on TV. And he's behind the fountain or behind the bush. And he's thinking, maybe, maybe they won't see me. It's like, the Sigma Chi's in Tallahassee see you. Like, how, are, how, how you're not going to escape. This is a God perspective when it comes to weeds or wolves in the church. God sees it for what it is. He understands what's going on. There are no threats in our midst that he is unaware of and that he will not protect us from, so we don't worry. We have patience. And I think that if we really understood the judgment that is coming, while we are commanded to pray, thy kingdom come, thy Lord be done on earth as in heaven, I think if we really understood the nature of God's judgment, we would not hasten that judgment on anyone. Because when these angels come, and they will, when the judgment comes, and it will, and it is not fun to talk about, but it is real. The Bible says it will be so terrible on that day for those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ that they will, they will wish the mountains to fall on them, to shield them from the wrath of God that the angels are bringing so we should be as patient as anyone with people who do not believe in Jesus, people whose walks with Jesus we question. And it's easy to create caricatures of God, you know, you kind of oscillate between this God who just wants, eager to see everybody burn, which is not 
the Bible. And, you know, another picture of God, like a parent or a grandparent who just wants his kids to like him. Just wants a grandparent, we'll do whatever. Just, you know, if you'll pray to me and go to church, I'll, I'll just, I'll do whatever. Both of those extremes isn't God. The God that we have, the God of the Bible is both just and gracious. He is both patient and fair. He is both decisive and long-suffering. He is perfect in every single way. And if you need help knowing that, then just look at the decisiveness of our God and the lovingness of our God at Calvary. Is he fully and finally brought the justice that all of us deserve on Jesus Christ? God the Father bringing the full wrath that all of us deserve on God the Son, Jesus Christ, that God the Holy Spirit might call and conform us and fully bring us into his kingdom. God is decisive. We need not worry about that. But the reality is, if you've been in the church for any period of time, really, you're going to see often we don't need to wait until judgment. Often the, the, the weeds and the wolves, they out themselves. And so many of you are familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor under, uh, in Germany under the reign of the Nazis during World War II. And let's be honest, it's been way too long since we've had a World War II reference, so here it is. And if anybody would have reason to be concerned about the wolves among the, the sheep, it's Bonhoeffer. I mean, he was faithfully teaching the Bible. He was openly against what the Nazis were doing. So if somebody in his midst was really not a Christian, then they would go tell somebody and he would be arrested, which he eventually was, and executed, which he eventually was. But even Bonhoeffer, he writes in, he's not writing about the weeds parable. He's writing about Jesus saying there will be sheep, there'll be wolves in sheep's clothing. In light of that passage, Bonhoeffer says such a pronouncement of Christ, that is there will be wolves, such a pronouncement of Christ's could cause his disciples great anxiety. Who really knows his neighbor? Who knows whether the outward appearance of a Christian conceals falsehood and deception underneath? All this distrust would ruin the church but for the word of Jesus, which assures us that the bad tree will bring forth bad, bad fruit. It is bound to give itself away sooner or later. There is no need to go about prying into the hearts of others. All we need to do is to wait until the tree bears fruit and we shall not have long to wait. So we're patient for lots of reasons. But lastly, we're patient because sometimes the weeds do turn into wheat. You know, we, we, we all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith, we were once weeds. And we decided to surrender our lives to Jesus. Not surrendering in the way that a rebellious driver on a car chase surrenders to a police officer who's just gonna take him to jail. But surrendering to God as a loved child only to be taken away to the kingdom of heaven for eternity in which we could rightly in this passage call God's heavenly barn. For all this and every other reason, we should remain patient with the coming of the kingdom. So if we have concern or pause about other people's faith, about other people's, what, what other Christians do. We shouldn't allow that to run us, to, to cause us to run to legalism. It shouldn't cause us to run from the church. It should cause us to do exactly what the disciples did and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus after that confusing moment. Run to Jesus asking, what's going on here? 
Run to Jesus with our concerns, with our fears, with our pains, and do so with an open heart. You know, we can't, we can't hop with a cynical heart from church to church, kind of the way that the crowd would. We can't create our own spiritual roadmap that we're gonna do what we want to do. We run to Jesus and ask him, what is it that you want us to do? What is it you want me to do in this moment? Maybe he's gonna give you an answer. Maybe he's just gonna give you peace. Maybe he's gonna give you comfort. But he will respond to you because he knows his sheep. He knows his wheat. He loves his children. And he will protect us and he will take care of us. And we need not fear those falling away from the church. Let's pray. God, we do. We thank you for this message. We thank you that you prepare us for every potentiality, for every reality that you know is coming our way. And our prayer is that for the wheat in the room that we would be encouraged and strengthened and that our roots would continue to grow deeper. And if there are people who don't believe in you, these proverbial parabolic weeds, that they would see what a joy, what security, what peace awaits all of us who surrender to your good will, that we would no longer be rebellious children, but that we would be loved children, loved and seen every bit as righteous as Jesus himself. God, we thank you, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.